0: The following audio is from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Now, what we're going to look at are two men and their encounters with Christ. And all three, Christ and these two men, have one thing in column. They're all Rulers. Okay, in fact, that's the title of tonight's message, the three rulers, Christ, spiritual ruler, and then these other two men that were secular rulers who thought they had the power, they had it all. And as we look at these guys, we're going to also look at, at the same time, and think about in the background, a lot of Non Christians who kind of fall in these same two categories. We have one group that basically are not interested in Christianity at, at all. They're not adverse to it, they're not against it. Just doesn't fit in their lives. They're not really interested, but somehow, someway, they get drawn in and they become interested despite themselves. But what's really weird is that they start looking for it and they start seeing, yeah, I, th- there's a lot of sense here. It makes a lot of sense. And they listen to their, their friends and they, they say, you know, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And as, a, as I l- look at it, they get right up there, but then for some unknown reason, they just turn away. And they don't, have, they don't change their priorities. And we don't know why a lot of times. And then there's another group, which as I put it, they are looking for Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And... It's because what they're looking for is not really a savior, but a cosmic genie who will come at their beck and call and give them everything they need. And if Jesus doesn't deliver, well, he clearly doesn't meet my needs. And they still look for Jesus. because They think maybe we can make a deal, maybe this can happen, but it just doesn't occur. And, well, he doesn't fulfill my needs. And they go on looking for truth, continuing on. And if we look at these two men we're going to talk about, we see those same characteristics. And the two men, if you haven't guessed it yet, are Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading. So if you're there already at, uh, the, at John 18, let's kind of give a little background. You know, this is part of the Easter story. It's Passover time in Jerusalem, so everybody has descended upon the town The Romans are a little worried because during this time, um, a lot of, because it's a religious festival, and essentially it's almost like the Jews' version of Independence Day, because as we know, Passover commemorated the release of the Jewish nation from Egypt, and so it gave them very much a national identity. So the Romans, who were ruling Judea at this time, always kept kind of a low profile, but they were there, just in case trouble stirred up, and it usually did. Now, Jesus didn't worry about that. Him, he and his disciples had a great Passover Seder up in the upper room. They had dinner together, a time of fellowship. And then his last words were he's basically giving him words of encouragement and kind of really telling them what's going to happen and, to be terribly honest, a lot of it just went over their heads. They weren't quite ready for it yet. They didn't quite understand it. and between discussion of who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom and how Peter was saying, oh, I'm never going to leave you even if they kill me, and Jesus saying, yeah, I know better. They finally went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while they were there, while Jesus was praying and the disciples were sleeping, you had Judas Iscariot, who had sold off Jesus for a price for 30 pieces of silver, showed up with a large contingent of soldiers, and they arrested Jesus on the spot. There was a scuffle, but we don't need to go into that since that's not really our focus at the moment. Suffice to say, Jesus was taken before the Jewish high priest at night, illegally, and after what could only be called a kangaroo court, was condemned to die for blasphemy. But there was a problem, okay? For these religious leaders, it wasn't enough to just kill Jesus and get him out of the way. Yeah, that was a goal, but they wanted more than just a simple murder, okay? Even a simple execution by stoning. You see, Jesus had made a lot of claims and had a lot of followers. He claimed that he was from God. And the Jewish leaders wanted to discredit that big time. You know, if he dies, people, he becomes a martyr, people will still follow him. They understood this concept very well. So what they wanted was not only did he die, but he would die accursed, a die in such a way that no one could seriously consider that he was from God. Well, fortunately, the book of Deuteronomy gave him away. You hang him, hang him from a tree, or as we now know, called crucifixion. Now, the Jews didn't do crucifixion. In fact, they were prohibited by Roman law to do any executions of any sort. But to do a a crucifixion, they couldn't do it themselves. They had to go to the Roman governor. And this is where we now meet Pontius Pilate. So we're in verse 28 of John 18. So here's what we see. Then they, the Jewish leaders led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Side note here, we could hold an illegal trial, illegally condemn someone to death, but we want to make sure we have to have dinner tonight. The hypocrisy in that. But you'll see that strain all through this this passage. So Pilate went out to them, and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, this is a natural question. You're bringing him. This is basically a, uh, a court of law now. Pilate's saying, what are the charges against him? He wanted to know. If you get hauled before a judge, that's what the judge wants to know. But listen to their answer. They answered and said to him, well, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. It's like telling a judge, well, if, we had, if he was innocent, we wouldn't have arrested him. But what was the charge? Well, Pilate said, you take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And there's a side note that the saying of Jesus might be, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So Pilate finds himself with someone saying, We need this guy executed. We want you to do it. Pilate's saying, What did he do? And they won't tell him. Pilate sees through this and he says, No, I'm not going to do this. You judge him. You take him. And essentially the Jews said, We have. We've done this, but we can't execute him. We want you to do it. Goes back to Pilate. Now, before we go any further, who is Pilate? Okay, we hear a lot about him. But really, beyond the Gospels, we don't know that much. Um, in fact, he used to be thought of as a, as a fictional character until 1961 with the discovery of a stone in Caesarea that had his name on it, and not just his name, what uh, his position was, his official title, and the year in which the stone was placed. Uh, it's funny how God likes to do that to verify his scriptures. Okay? Well... There were other mentions of Pilate in uh, Jewish history and Roman history, but not a lot, but enough that we can kind of infer a little bit about the guy. Um, the fact he was governor meant he was a Roman citizen, which in this period of time was a big deal. Uh, also the fact that he was sort of in charge here meant that he was actually of the uh, aristocracy of Rome. But. The records show he was not in the upper crust. He wasn't a senator. He was actually in the lowest level of the aristocracy, which meant he wasn't that big of a big shot, okay? He was a soldier. He had to be in order to be made a governor. He was a commanding officer. Um, His title, by the way, was not governor. I know the scripture says it. And for years, they thought he was a procurator, which we don't need to worry about. No, his title was prefect, which distinguished him from a true governor. See, his boss resided in Antioch and called the shots. He was the governor of, of Syria. You might remember, if you're familiar with the book, book of Luke, you hear about Quirinius and the census of Augustus. This was when he was governor of Assyria. He basically had charge of this whole reason, region, and Pilate had to answer to him. Now, Judea was not exactly a desirable place for Romans to be stationed. It's kind of like being said, you're going to go to the desert and everyone seems to think you're thinking Palm Springs and you end up going to Baker. It was not a good place for Romans. Now, Romans had control there, but the Jews had a special situation. They had an understanding with the Roman government, which meant Romans didn't have to try to assimilate their culture. Now, Romans figured, as we go everywhere, we want everyone to be Romans. We're the Romans, we're wonderful, and we have civilization, and you play ball with us, we'll give you all sorts of benefits. And this has happened several times. But In Judea, the Jews said, no, we won't do that, and they had an understanding. In fact, they were protected by Roman law, which put the governors in really a tight spot they couldn't really do what they wanted to do because a lot of times Jewish law trumped Roman law. And this was kind of one of those situations where Pilate could see this could either go good or could go bad. So in essence, if you think about it, he didn't want to be there. In fact, normally the seat of government in Judea was on the coast in a town called Caesarea. The only reason Pilate was in Jerusalem was because of the uh, Passover he had to be there in case there was an issue. Tiberius was the emperor at this time and he was the one who placed Pilate in control in AD 26 and he was in command for about ten years. But he had a reputation of being very hot headed, very impetuous which meant that he made instant decisions and not always the best ones. He had a very callous disregard for Jewish customs. Okay? At the right times, he kind of honored them, but the rest of the time, he could care less, okay? He was actually recalled to Rome after a massacre of some Samaritans who were headed up to, you know, view some holy relics that were supposedly buried by Moses. A lot of historians think this may have been a trap set by some Romans, though not necessarily Pilate, and he was sent back to Rome to explain his actions, but Tiberius had died before Pilate got there. And at that point, we don't hear any more about the man. So he's asking, why is he here? Okay. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to deal with Jewish law. That's why he tells him, you take him away. But from this point, we see, and you don't have to turn here, we'll jump to Luke 23. The Jews actually give more, and Luke 23 fills in a few of the blanks. Luke 23, verse 2 says, And they begin to accuse him, Jesus, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ's king. Ah, now Pilate's thinking, okay, now I see what the problem is. It's is a little more serious. One of Pilate's jobs was to collect taxes on the behalf of the Roman government, and he did have a series of or a network of tax collectors. Most of them Jewish, you know, Jews who basically had to make a living in some way and had been basically ostracized by the rest of their nation. This was serious. If you were leading a tax revolt, you could be killed for it. you could be executed for it. If you were claiming that you were a king, this was treason. So now Pilate's taking it a little more seriously. But at the same token, he's looking at this man standing in front of him, this man Jesus. He's not acting like a rebel. He's not sitting there with a scowl on his face and he's in chains and he's looking like he wants to kill everybody. He's just standing there calmly with a lot of confidence. Remember, Jesus knew what was happening. He was well aware of what was going to happen next. This was part of the Lord's plan. This was part of God's plan, and he was okay with it. Okay. He wasn't looking forward to it, as we saw in his prayer in the garden, but he was okay with it. So he wasn't scared. He, wasn't, he didn't even, wasn't all that concerned whether or not Pilate did pass sentence right there or waited a bit. So Pilate decides he wants to dig a little more. Now let's go back to John 18. We're in verse 33 now. Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is none of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, He wanted to get Jesus away from the priests, away from the deputation that brought him in, so he could dig and find out what exactly was going on here. Um, There's a good possibility. I'm not saying this is gospel truth, but there's a good possibility Pilate had already heard about Jesus. I mean, just a week before he comes into town, and there's crowds screaming and yelling, "Hosanna to the highest, Hosanna to the son of David." And he had a huge following wherever he went, so it's a good chance that the Roman authorities were aware of him, were aware of his activities, and that Pilate himself knew something about what was going on. In fact, this reason I think this is if we look at Matthew 27:18, it mentions that Pilate knew that the Jews had handed him over because of envy. So he pretty much, he may have at that point sized up the situation. Uh, they're just trying to get you killed. They want you out of the way. So his question, are you the kings of the Jews, was posed because he didn't believe what the Jewish leaders had said. And he wanted to hear from Jesus' lips. Are you the pretender? Are you try, pretending like you want to be king and start a revolt? He was expecting a yes or no answer, and Jesus didn't give it to him. Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others t- tell you concerning me? Essentially, Jesus asked, Are you really interested in this answer? Or are you just going through the motions because this is a judicial proceeding? That's essentially what he said. Now, Pilate goes back and says, Am I a Jew? He probably said it kind of with a sneer because they looked down at the Jews. And he basically said, Your own people, your own nation have arrested you and brought you here. What he is basically telling Jesus, don't blame me for this. I'm not accusing you of anything. I just want to know what's going on. Here's the key what is the truth? Jesus calmly explained. He said, okay, you want to hear? Here it is. It's not a political kingdom. Yes, I'm a king. You said it right. But it's not political, it's spiritual. My followers. If it was political, my followers would be having a battle right now. You'd be having a war on your hands if this were taking place. My kingdom's in the heart of my followers. And he does not depend on worldly or fleshly means to advance his cause. Jesus wasn't that type. He was explaining, this is why I'm here. And Pilate was intrigued. He's like, oh, this is interesting. I never heard anything quite like this before. So you are a king. And Jesus said, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I him. he declared that his purpose was to bear testimony to truth, and that anyone who was devoted to the truth was willing to listen to him. In essence, he's looking at Pilate and saying, are you interested enough to listen completely with an open mind? Forget what those guys are saying. Forget what your Roman upbringing is. Are you interested in what really why I am here? As we see Jesus many times, he's more interested in the person he's talking to, even when he's under arrest, than himself. He wasn't talking with Pilate to try to get himself off. He was truly concerned. He saw a man in need. He saw someone who was really wanting to find truth, and he was trying to fulfill that need even at that point. Now, Pilate's response of what is truth we really from the context don't know if it was a sarcastic remark, if it was a, 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 a remark of explanation or excla- you know, exclamation or you know, just frustration, you know, like what is truth anyway? You know, what are you talking about? Have to remember that as a Roman he was brought up, he was well educated in Greek culture and they had been debating this question, what is truth, for hundreds of years. And he probably figured there was no real answer. Oh, you've got an answer maybe? Now, I don't want to hear another answer. Maybe. We don't know. We have no clue why he said it. But he did leave at that point, which means he was probably a rhetorical question. He really wasn't interested in an answer. And he goes out and he says, I find no fault in him at all. He probably figured this, this man is a harmless philosopher, just like all the others I've heard. He's no danger to us. Just, he's, he's innocent. Now, hold your place in John 18, and now let's go back to Luke 23. And we're going to be going to Luke 23 in verse 5. Now, it's clear that Pilate really didn't want anything to do with what was happening. We've said that many times. He wanted to drop the whole thing. It's like, this has nothing to do with Roman law. He's innocent. Why are you wasting my time? Why are you wasting your time? But no matter how much Pilate wanted the whole matter to just be dropped, the Jewish leaders continued to push, and they pushed hard. In fact, you'll see, every time he comes back and says the innocent, they raise the the tension level. They raise the ante. They raise their threats. Luke 23, 5. But they, again, the Jewish leaders, were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now it may seem like Pilate's shuffling off responsibility, but actually it isn't. There is a precedent, there was precedent in Roman law that when someone was accused of the crime, they would send him back to the province from which he came. Now, Galilee was not part of Judea. It was ruled by one of Herod the Great's son. His name was Herod Antipas, okay? We know this particular Herod because he was the one who had executed John the Baptist. Remember the story? He had uh, taken his brother Philip's wife John basically called him out on it, and at some point his wife forced Herod to have him arrested. And Herod's daughter um, danced for Herod, and he promised her anything she wanted, and she asked for John the Baptist's head. So he was kind of a mini ruler in that region, but not, he was under the authority of Rome, but not under the authority of Pilate. So it was basically a gesture of, hey, he's a Galilean, let's this guy take care of it. Also, Herod was very well-versed in Jewish law. And Pilate maybe thought, hmm, maybe Herod can untangle this mess. He's more qualified to deal with it. So off he goes. And Herod just happened to be in Jerusalem also because of the Passover. So looking on in uh, verse 8, Luke 23. Now, when Herod saw Jesus... He was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Now, here Herod was looking for Jesus for all the wrong reasons. To Herod, Jesus was a celebrity. He had heard all about this guy and was thinking, oh, it'd be really cool to see him, and maybe he'll perform a miracle. He wanted to be entertained. It had nothing to do with the message of Jesus, and as a result, Jesus said, you don't want to listen to me. He didn't say this, but I'm sure this was in his thought. You don't want to listen to me. So Jesus said nothing. And Herod didn't get a miracle. He didn't get anything. At least Pilate heard from Jesus. You could tell Jesus was trying to reach him. Herod probably figured you're beyond reach. And let's be honest with one another. Herod didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. I mean, he had John the Baptist killed because he didn't like what he heard. Jesus would probably just do the same thing. Earlier in Luke, Jesus refers to Herod as that old fox, which was kind of a Jewish saying, that old woman, okay? Jesus clearly didn't like or think a lot of Herod either. So Jesus didn't talk. And the response, predictable. He was, Herod was angered by the silence. Basically, you're treating me With silence, you're not treating me as a special someone? Fine. Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt. He mocked him. They put on a royal robe and then sent him back to Pilate. However, Herod couldn't find anything wrong with him either. None of the charges would stick. So Pilate had his confirmation. He's innocent. Why are we going on with this? Moving on, verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. So once again, Pilate says, not guilty. But there's more. Go back to John 18. We wanted to hold your place there. Go back. We're in verse 39. Jews aren't going to give up. Now they ratchet up the pressure even more. So Pilate continues. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Therefore, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's actually using their own words against him at this point. They all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Moving into chapter 19, so Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, king of the Jews, and they struck them with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault with him. There he says it again. He's not guilty. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault with him. The Jews answered him and said, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. No matter what Pilate tried to do, things were starting now to get out of control. The other Gospels mentioned that he gave the crowd a choice between Barabbas and Jesus for this traditional release, and this Barabbas was essentially described in all the Gospels as a robber, a murderer, and a rebel, very likely a, group of, uh, a member of a group of Jews called the Zealots, which were dedicated to the violent overthrow of Roman rule in, in Judea, and they would take their aggressions out not just on Romans but anyone they suspected of aiding the Romans. Now, what Pilate was thinking at this point, and there is a certain logic to it, who on earth would rather have a murderer and a robber running around free to do what he wants as opposed to someone who didn't do a thing? To him, the choice was clear. Jesus is innocent. This guy we know is guilty. Hey, to me, it seems a simple choice. The guy who didn't do anything. I want him as my neighbor, not Barabbas. But Here again, Pilate didn't understand the Jews because the Jews didn't see it in those terms. They saw Barabbas as a freedom fighter, as a patriot. And he was someone who should be rewarded for what he had done in the name of Jewish independence. So Pilate says, oh, this isn't working. It got even worse. So he decided if logic doesn't work, let's see if we can appeal to your emotions. This is why he had Jesus flogged. It wasn't because he thought he was guilty, but he had a plan. He figured if I beat this guy up to a pulp and he comes out and he's looking like someone who's about to die, pity and compassion will come out in these people and they'll say, oh yeah, you're right, we were wrong, we were too hasty. Now the robe may have been the same robe that Herod had given him when he was over there, but the crown of thorns was a vine that had huge thorns on it. So when they said they twisted them, they actually made it into a ring and then they pressed it down on his head, and it cut into it. So as we mentioned, it was a bloody mess. So here he is. Behold the man. Pilate's pointing at him, and the reaction was even worse. Crucify him. He couldn't believe it. What's going on here? Why is this happening? What are you trying to do? He basically said, okay, fine, you do it. I'm not going to do this. And they said, we can't no, no, no. And they threw in another log into the fire. They said, no, he's, he says he's the son of God. Now, this really got Pilate's attention, okay? Chapter 19, verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, why was Pilate afraid at this point? I mean, to us, when we think of the Son of God, it doesn't strike fear into our hearts. But remember... Pilate was a Roman. And though he was probably not an avid follower of the Roman religion, remember, Roman religion descended from Greek religion. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, you know that the Greek and Roman gods occasionally came down to earth and had flings with humans. And the result was usually a half breed, half god, half human hero like Hercules who would go around and do all sorts of miraculous things. Remember what I said it's very good chance that Pilate was indeed aware of what Jesus was doing. And he probably heard about those miracles. So now he's thinking, a son of God, maybe this is a divine being here. You can see he got glimmerings of the truth. And he didn't want to offend a divine being. That's why he was asking the question. However, Jesus didn't answer because he had already answered it before. Pilate knew what the answer was. So in frustration, what does Pilate do? Well, look, I've got this power to do, I could have you killed and I have you released. And Christ just kind of looked at said, yeah, you wouldn't have had that power except it comes from God. But I don't hold it on you. This is not your fault. Saying it calmly and compassionately, beaten to a pulp, but still maintaining that reserve. Really, what was happening here? Christ was reminding Pilate that God was in control. Pilate couldn't do anything unless God said it was okay. Now we tend to villainize Pilate. We tend to call him he's wishy-washy. He should have tried harder to secure Jesus's release. He was a travesty of Roman justice, and so on. But you have to remember that everything that happened was supposed to happen. That was the plan of salvation that God laid out from the very beginning. Jesus wasn't there because of some accident or because of a mistake or failure of the Roman government to protect an innocent man. This was how spiritual salvation was going to be secured. In essence, Jesus said to Pilate, it doesn't matter what you think. God's plan is going to go ahead. Pilate was just as anxious now. He saw, kind of now saw a more glimmer of what was going on here. He didn't understand it completely, but he's thinking, no, this has got to stop. This has to stop. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, again, cranking up the pressure, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. He then delivered him to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate knew what the right thing was to do, the just thing to do. There shouldn't have been any more discussion, any more questions. But then the Jews forced his hand. They pulled out their own trump card. If you let this man go, you are not a friend of Caesar's, and whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. The Emperor Tiberius was very paranoid. He was very suspicious of his underlings. And if there was ever any inkling that perhaps Pilate had let a revolutionary go, Pilate's life probably would have come to an end. And Pilate was aware of this. At this point, he basically knew he didn't have a choice. He had to deliver Jesus over there. He saw what was going on. And he wasn't happy with it whatsoever. But what's interesting, there's a side note here too. Here are the these uh, Jewish leaders. They ask for this revolutionary, this, this freedom fighter, this notorious murderer to be freed. Basically praising him for his work for independence. And what do they do? Within minutes, they go on record that they are the subjects of a pagan emperor. We have no king but Caesar. Everything that that freedom fighter stood against, they are now claiming, no, we're really subjects of Caesar. More hypocrisy. It's a sad note. Moving on in verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side. Jesus in the center, and now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This was Pilate's last word. He was basically telling them, you guys have no sense of justice whatsoever. This execution should never have taken place, and so we're going to make it look even bad. We're going to make it look like we crucified your king like a common criminal, and if you just can't handle it, take it and like it. That's what he meant when he said, what I have written, I have written. Pilate knew he was very well versed on the workings of the Jewish religious establishment. He knew that they would be offended by it and he could care less. They had already made him perform a major perversion of justice and he could care less now what they thought. So there we have it. The two responses to an encounter with Jesus. For Pilate, as we said before, he really didn't want to be there. But Jesus still gave him that opportunity. Jesus saw not a governor, not a Roman pagan, but he saw someone who was in need, someone who really did want to know the truth. And Jesus was trying to probe inside and give him that opportunity. You think about it, because Jesus, you want to know what the truth is? If Pilate had hung around, Jesus might have quoted himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Pilate was too much in a hurry. He just turned his back. How often does this happen among an unsaved person? They have an academic interest in Christianity, they listen to your witness, they see other people doing great things, they see even maybe even powerful miracles. But they it's like they walk up to the altar, but they never touch it. Relationship political or financial gain, job security, whatever the reason, they turn their back. They know the truth, but they don't really want it, want it anymore. And then when it comes to truth for Herod, the truth didn't even matter. It was, what can Jesus do for me? Though Herod wasn't a king, history tells us that he tried to act like a powerful monarch by you know, da- telling a dancing girl, you can have up to Half my kingdom, like he was some great eastern potentate. He was more interested in fulfilling his fleshly desires than he was about what God had to say to him. And as we saw, he really only wanted to see Jesus to be entertained. When Herod actually got the chance to see him, he didn't get anything. And this is like a person, and I, I've, I've known instances in my own Christian walk of people like this. This is like a person who will go to a Harvest Crusade, unsafe person. go to the Harvest Crusade, listen to all the music, and then leave before the message because the concert's over. Or other people that go church shopping because they want to find the perfect worship team because they have the best music. Or the most entertaining pastors because they, they tickle my ears and they make me feel good. Okay? They're really not interested in what God has to say to them. They shut it out. They're more interested in the visual and special effects and the fancy sound system that has subwoofers that will set your, set your head beating. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Oh, he preaches the Bible. Hmm, That's nice. But, boy, listen to their, their worship team. Now, don't get me wrong. Having a great worship team and having nice technology and all the great things, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, okay? But when that becomes the focus and your criteria of whether or not you want to attend to church and the whole point of hearing from God doesn't even come up at all, there is something wrong. And what happens? Why is this wrong? Well, what happens? The person starts resisting the word, and as they move along, they get less satisfied with their Christian walk. They get less satisfied for what they used to like. Oh, this worship team doesn't, doesn't do it to me anymore, so I'll jump over to this church and see what they've got. And pretty soon, none of the worship teams work because God is slowly withdrawing. And at that point, they blame the church. They don't blame themselves, they don't look at themselves and say, Oh, yeah, that's my fault. They say, no, The church doesn't meet my needs. It goes back to that statement. And they criticize any group of believers that may not share that discontent. And then they start making fun of the gospel. And fun of true believers. When I was in high school, I went to Maranatha High School, Christian High School, and I knew people personally. They attended a certain church, and they're not going to mention the name, but it was a big church in the San Gabriel Valley, simply because that's where all the cute girls were. Yeah, it was all about the girls. And this guy would openly say, yeah, the youth pastor's boring. He didn't talk about anything. During chapel, Maranatha, every week we'd have chapel and some speaker would come in. This person would sit there and, and sit and chuckle under his voice to his friend as they're making fun of the guy up there, how he'd talk or when he would gesture or something. Okay? He just didn't get it. And at that point, God's saying, you don't want to listen to me? Fine. I won't say anything to you. And Paul addressed this, 1 Corinthians 1.18. You may have heard this one before. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. So as believers, how do we reach those Pilots and Herods in our lives? And they're there. They're all around us, family members, coworkers, colleagues really first and foremost you've got to pray consistently fervently and never stop any christian will tell you and most any christian will tell you who were really hardened in their bc days bc before christ okay that they were hardened sinners that they were you know seeing them in church was like yeah right they ain't gonna happen okay any of these guys, when they tell their testimony, they will always mention that there was somebody who was praying for them, that their salvation was rooted in the prayer of a saint. It could have been a grandmother, like it was for myself. It could have been a parent, co-worker, even a total stranger who lived across the street and saw what was going on, and they would pray. And pretty soon, the heart melted, and now they came to the Lord thanks to that prayer. It may take a long time. It may take a short time. It's God's timing, but we can't stop because we don't see anything. Because God is good. God is faithful. I'd like to end with a story that kind of talks about this. I had heard this many years ago, so some of the details maybe be a, a little fuzzy, but I'll be honest, it hit me right here, as I hope that it'll reach you as well. Um, there was a woman who regularly, regularly attended her church for many years, and she always sat in the same spot in church, you know, let's say right over here, okay? And she always had her Bible placed on the seat next to her, as if she was saving the seat for somebody. And as the church grew from time to time, an usher would come up and say, uh, is this seat taken? And she would say, uh, yes, I'm saving it for my husband. But as time went on during the service, no one ever showed up. And that gap was always there. And she made sure no one ever sat there. I'm saving it for my husband. Well, as years went on, the ushers were very familiar with this. And no one ever really questioned about it. And if someone did, like someone who didn't know her, it was always the same answer. Yes, I am saving this for my husband. Now, one Sunday, many years later... The usher, one of the ushers who knew this woman, noticed that she was not there at church. But right next to that seat, there was a there was a man sitting. And he's you know, he looks oh, who's that? And he didn't recognize it. First time. So being a good usher that he is, he goes over to greet him. But he's a little curious. He's thinking, you know, you're sitting in this woman's seat. Is this going to be a problem? And He looked as he got closer. He said, no, this guy looked miserable, absolutely miserable, like he'd lost his last friend. So Usher introduced himself and said, hi, um, you're new. Welcome. Um, Who are you? And the visitor, he replied. He said, well, this is the first time I've ever gone to church. His wife, he said, my wife had asked me for years. ever since we got married. Asked me for years, can I go to church with her? And I didn't think about it. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't need it, okay? And this was over 25 years I would refuse. Now, after the first year, she stopped asking, okay? And she assumed. I assumed I didn't need it. And it was, a, you know, she was always praying. I knew she was praying about it. But it was a harmless activity. I didn't worry about it. I had, you know, job to do, you know, bills to pay, all that kind of thing. And then he says, last week, she was killed in a car accident, He goes on to say, <coughs> Pardon me. He goes on to say, She was the love of my life. Now she's gone. Now I know she came here. I didn't know what else to do, so I came here too. He took out his wallet and he showed a picture of his wife to the usher. He says, I, kn- I don't know if you know her or not. I mean, she came here, but this is a big church. I don't know if you know her or not, but here she is. Now, the usher. Teared up just like I'm doing. He said, yeah, I do know her. He pointed at the seat next to the one she, he was sitting. This is where she sat every single Sunday. And she always kept the seat you're sitting in open. Always saying she was saving it for her husband. Here you are. At that moment, that usher had the privilege to lead that man to Christ. They became close friends, and they were serving together in ministry for years. And then one day, after a few years, the time came, and the husband went to join his wife with the Lord. It's a beautiful story, and it is a true story. I, mean, I personally do not know the people involved, because, it, again, it was came from a pastor in my past. But it shows what I was saying, that no matter how hardened they are, no matter how much like Pilate, no matter how much like Herod, how much people don't think that they need the Lord, God can still reach them. And it's our job to pray, and when the opportunities come, to reach him as well. And we must be like that woman, praying for those we love, even though we may never see the results of that prayer. It's in the Lord's timing. And we make sure that none of our loved ones will miss that encounter with the Lord that we will have in the last days. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for the story. We thank you for the example of Pilate and Herod as giving us an insight to a non-believer's thought process. And though we were all non-believers at one point, not all of us had the same point of view. Not of all, all of us came to you the same way. Not all of us met you in the exact same way. And Father, right now, I just feel that we, I want you to just be with all of us here who have Pilate's and Herod's in our family among our co-workers. And Father, we just, I just ask that you give us that wherewithal to pray for them every day, countlessly, knowing that we may not see any change, but that you are in charge, Father, and that you don't want anyone to perish. You want everyone to have everlasting life. And Father, we ask you to also give us the courage to be that shining beacon, be that voice when the time is right, that we know we have the wisdom to know when to speak to a person and when to stay silent. And while we have our, our heads bowed, I want to give an invitation to anyone here who may be a Pilate or a Herod, and you're coming here for whatever reason, maybe for the wrong reasons. Maybe you are truly wondering what the truth is. Or perhaps you did have a relationship with Christ at one point in time, and now you slipped away for whatever reason. Your priorities got mixed up. Jesus is waiting to see you. If he was willing to reach a man like Pontius Pilate, He's definitely willing to see you. There's no one that's hopeless. If you're someone who wants to have that encounter with Jesus right now, go ahead and raise your hand. And we'll pray for you. And lastly, it was a general prayer, but if you have a relative or a loved one who is a pilot or a Herod who is either has no interest in God or wants God for the wrong reasons, and I'll tell you right now, I'm one of them. I want you to stand so we can pray together. I'm standing with you. Father, see us now. We are standing now for, for you, Father. We are showing our publicly our commitment for these loved ones that we do not want to see perish, that we want to see again after we leave this life or when you come again. Pour your Spirit upon every single one of these people who are standing right now, Father, and again, anoint them with that power and strength from on high. The patience, the the courage, power of prayer that you've given us we ask you to have them wield it in a way that will cause the enemy to shake and tremble because that was what you gave us the power of this prayer we ask you to soften the hearts of those that they are standing for we are intervening for these unsaved loved ones now and we praise you father that our prayers are not in vain that you do answer prayer and you do love us and we thank you now, Father. We give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Calvary Chapel Monrovia. We pray you have been blessed by this sermon. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org.